please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Acts chapter 2. We are in a series of messages that we've entitled One Mission. And we this year, year 2016, is the year of evangelism. And so over the past several weeks, we've been looking in the Old Testament and New Testament, looking at the mission that God has called us to do. And, and in this year of evangelism, obviously, when we think of evangelism, we think of going and sharing our faith with someone who is lost. And what we've been trying to do and what I hope that you understand of what we've been talking about here over these past several weeks and even uh, up until today is that evangelism is so much more than going and knocking on a door and sharing your faith, sharing the gospel. It begins, as we saw a few weeks ago from the book of Psalms and throughout the uh, Bible is evangelism is going and sowing and reaping. And as we go, as we, before we even go, we go with a burden. We understand that before we go share our faith, we must see people as Christ sees them. We, we looked at the Great Commission, and we, we talked about uh, the Great Commission. We looked at the book of Acts chapter 1 last week, and, and we saw that, uh, that to, he said to be my witnesses. And, and we said that uh, the word witness is a noun. It's not a verb. Witness is who we are. It's not what we do. And we often take that word witness. We make it a verb. We, we say that this is what I have to do. I have to go and witness. And, and the reality is when we look at the Scripture, when we look at Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2, and the Bible, he calls us to be his witnesses. Witnessing is not something we do. It's someone who we are. Today, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2. We're going to be looking at Pentecost. And I want you to see the importance of Pentecost. Please stand in the honor of reading God's word. Acts chapter 2, we'll begin reading in verse number 1. The Bible says, when the, do- the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them the utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Elamites, uh, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. Father, we thank you for this word. And God, as we look back over time and we see the importance of Pentecost, Lord, I pray that you will speak to our hearts here today. Father, lead us in the path of righteousness. Lord, as we talk about this one mission that you've called us to do, Lord, I I know it begins with the heart. And today, the, the message today that you have given to me to deliver to your church is such an important message. Father, I pray that all ears and all hearts will be open to your word today. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen and amen. Please be seated. 
two things that we're going to see about the importance of Pentecost. Number one, we must understand, we must see the promise of Pentecost. We must understand the promise of Pentecost. Jesus promised his followers that, that he would never leave them, that he would not leave them uh, comfortless, that he would not leave them or forsake them. And in fact, when Jesus was alive, he promised his disciples that he was going to go away, but even by going away, he's going to give to them someone who is even better, someone who is going to sit close Closer to them than a brother. And of course, he's speaking of the Holy Spirit of God. And so this was the promise. And the promise uh, came here in Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost. And so Jesus told us and promised us that the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost will come upon us. Now, when we speak of the Holy Spirit, when we speak of the Holy Ghost, there are often two extremes that Christians go to. There's, there's two camps that we often gravitate toward. We Baptists, like many mainline denominations, we, we don't really want to talk about the Holy Spirit. We, we, we actually changed his name from Holy Ghost to Holy Spirit because we're scared of the Holy Spirit. We, we, we think the Trinity is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Word, right? We, 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 we would rather not speak on the Holy Spirit. If you were raised in a mainline denomination church, I would guarantee that you heard very few messages on the Holy Spirit. Why? Because oftentimes we're scared of, of the Holy Spirit. We're scared of the Holy Ghost. I'll prove this to you. For those of you that were raised in church and raised with hymnals, whether you're Baptist or Methodist or Presbyterian, how many hymns do you know that sing about God the Father? There's a lot, right? Hymn number one, holy, 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 right? Uh, we, we know a lot of hymns. How many hymns do you know about Jesus Christ? There's a lot of hymns uh, about Jesus. How many hymns do you know about the Holy Spirit? There's not a lot. There's not a lot. We, we don't sing because we've, we've, we've come into this camp, and that's not a good thing to come over to this extreme. Now, there's another extreme. Our charismatic friends, they, they tend to come over here to this extreme, and, and they don't even believe in the Trinity. It's all about the Spirit, right? It's all about the Holy Spirit. It's all about experience and, and the Holy Ghost, and, and they don't want to have anything to do except for the Holy Ghost. And the problem with that is Jesus said that the Holy Spirit has come to testify unto me. Right? So we can't elevate the Holy Spirit uh, to a certain place. And the problem with, with this trend and, and this extreme, many charismatics, they, they believe that they have to live on spiritual highs because uh, of, of their influence and, and their, their, their uh, concentration on the Holy Spirit. And, and they often teach and they often think that if you fall into sin, it's your own fault and it's because you've messed up or, or if something good's not happening, it's because of some sin that, that you committed. And so you have to live on a spiritual high. And so oftentimes the people that are over here in this extreme, what they do and what they teach is that they believe that, that we have to live on a spiritual high. And so what often happens is we begin to have to manufacture spiritual highs. We have to manufacture uh, certain feelings in order to keep us at this high level. Is this making sense? We, we, must, we must begin to manufacture certain miracles. We must manufacture uh, certain things to keep us on a certain high. Uh, because if we go down in the valley, we don't want to be down there because that means that's a result of sin. And so we don't want to be there. But the reality is in the Bible, we know that life is a series of highs and lows. And we also understand that we cannot live in the mountaintops all the time. It's down in the valleys where we actually grow closer and closer to the Lord, right? 
and, and let, me, let me prove this to you. We cannot be sustained by miracles. Think about the Israelites when after, after Moses went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And, and, and after, uh, after trial, after trial, after trial, after plague, after plague, after plague, eventually Pharaoh said, okay, I'll let the people go. But right before he did that, it was the, 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 the Passover, right? It was the Passover. And so he let them go and, and, and the Israelites left and, and Moses and the Israelites, they, they came to the Red Sea and they said, okay, what's going to happen now? God, you led us out of Egypt. You've led us to the Red Sea. How are we going to cross? And God said, Moses, take your staff and stretch it forth over the water. He did. And God took the Red Sea. He parted the Red Sea. And those Israelites walked across the Red Sea on dry land. They saw a great miracle. They got across the dry land and they began to, or they got across the Red Sea and they began to say, oh, I'm hungry. There's no food here in the desert. Oh, I'm hungry. God provided another miracle. He allowed manna to fall from heaven and that manna sustained them, another miracle. So miracle after miracle, they're living on spiritual highs right now. Moses tells the Israelites, he says, I have to go up to the mountain. I have to meet God. You stay right here. I'll be right back. As soon as Moses turned his back on those Israelites, those, those Israelites took that Egyptian gold, they, they boiled it down, they fashioned another god, and they began to worship it. They had all kinds of orgies. They, they were doing all these things. Why is that? Because miracles do not sustain. They saw a lot of awesome things. Maybe you've seen a lot of awesome things, but, 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 but miracles do not sustain life. So I submit to you that we, we shouldn't be like the old-time Baptists where we completely reject the Holy Spirit. We shouldn't come over here to this extreme where, where we think everything has to be a miracle and everything has to be supernatural and we should never have hard times or bad times. We should reject those extremes and we should try to find the biblical ground, the, the, the median ground. So we come to the Scripture. And we see that Jesus tells his disciples, I want you to go and wait in the upper room. 120 men and women went to the upper room and they were, they were there waiting for the day of Pentecost. What is Pentecost? Pentecost is the feast day that is celebrated 50 days after Passover. It's happened ever since the first Passover. Remember what we said, Moses, when he led uh, the children of Israel out of Egypt, that happened because the death angel passed over. Remember what Passover is. On the final plague that God was going to bring upon Egypt and upon Pharaoh and his household, Moses told Pharaoh, and God spoke to Moses, so this Moses told Pharaoh what God said, that in the end, if, if you don't take the blood of a lamb, a spotless lamb, cut its throat, catch the blood in the basin, take a hyssop branch, dip it in the blood, and apply it on the doorpost of your home. Whoever does this, the death angel will pass over. But if the blood is not applied, then the death angel will come and kill the firstborn. Well, this is the Passover. All of the Israelites, they took a lamb, a spotless lamb. They, slayed it, they, they slit his throat. They caught the blood. They applied hyssop. They put it in a hyssop branch. They applied it to their doorpost. And sure enough, that night came, the death angel passed over. 
The houses that had the blood of the lamb weren't touched, but the houses that had no blood applied, the firstborn son died. That is the Passover. Jews have celebrated Passover. They've celebrated the feast of Passover from that point all the way even until today. Jesus died on Passover. Calvary happened on Passover. It wasn't just any lamb that was slain. It was the lamb of God. What happened, though, 50 days after the first Passover? What happened 50 days after the Israelites left Egypt? 50 days after that marks the time that Moses went on top of the mountain to receive the covenant of God. Pentecost is the mark of the old covenant. It's where Moses received the law of God. Now we fast forward. We come to Jesus. This Passover is different. He's, he's celebrating the Lord's Supper and he's, he's teaching them that I'm going to have to die. I am the lamb of God. Jesus said, I am the lamb. You're not going to kill just any lamb, but I am the lamb of God that's going to be sacrificed and crucified for the sins, not just of one family, but for the sins of the whole world. This Passover happens and Jesus dies. Three days after Passover, he's resurrected. He's resurrected from the dead. 50 days after Passover, comes Pentecost. These disciples, these 120, they, they're gathered in a room. They're, they're praying. They're trusting the Lord. And God fulfilled his promise again. Just as he made a promise to the Israelites that if you obey this law, I will be your God. Just as he made that covenant, now he's come and he's made a new covenant. Just as he made an Old Testament of what I'm going to do, now is instituted the New Testament. Pentecost is the mark of the New Testament. Pentecost is the mark of the New Covenant. The Old Covenant, the law of Moses, was law. Now comes grace. The Old Covenant is the covenant of law. The New Covenant is the covenant of grace. And so we come to Pentecost, and the beauty of Pentecost, the, the promise of Pentecost is that God is faithful, that God is present, that God is going to fulfill what he promised. Jesus said, you wait, and the Spirit is going to come upon you. And it happened just as he promised that it would. They waited, and the Lord came. And today, because of what happened on that Pentecost almost 2,000 years ago, the, because the Spirit has come, because the Spirit and the, the, the promise and the covenant was fulfilled, the emphasis for us is no longer waiting on the Spirit of God. You don't have to wait on God's Spirit anymore. Bethlehem is God with us, Emmanuel, right? During Christmas, we talk about Emmanuel, it means God with us. Bethlehem tells us God is with us. Calvary tells us that God is for us, that God is for us, that God loves us. Pentecost tells us that God can be in us. Isn't that good? Bethlehem is God with us, Emmanuel. Calvary is God for us. Pentecost is God in us. And so there is no need in this hour, in the, in the church uh, dispensation, there's no time for the church to be praying to be filled with the Spirit of God, that the Spirit would come. We don't have to wait. The Spirit has already come. The baptism of the Spirit, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, 
If you have confessed your sin, you've repented of your sin, invited him into your life, and you are a Christian, a believer, the Bible says that you have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. You say, Pastor, are you baptized with the Holy Spirit? Of course I am. You say, well, do I need to ask for another baptism? Absolutely not. Once you are saved, when you invite Christ into your life, at that moment, you are baptized with the Holy Spirit. I was baptized as a 17-year-old young man in Maryville, Tennessee. Maybe you were five years old when you were saved. Maybe you were 60 years old when you were saved. At the point of salvation is when you were baptized with the Spirit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we are all baptized in one body by the Holy Spirit. Let me prove this to you. For those of you in this room who are Christians, do you have, is, does Jesus live in your life? Does all of Jesus live in your life? If that is true, then you must admit that all of the Spirit lives in your life. Because the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is simply the Spirit of Christ. And so we've been baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, this raises an all-important question as we're talking about being filled with the Spirit, as we're talking about the baptism of the Spirit. What, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit of God? That's a very good question. There's so many answers out there about what it means to be filled with the Spirit, and we complicate this, this matter so much, but it's yet it's such a very simple thing. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit of God? Two things. Number one, you must possess the Spirit. You must possess the Spirit. We've already established that. We've already talked about that. Once you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, at that moment you're baptized with the Spirit. The Spirit comes and, and, and lives inside of you. Understand that the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is not an it. I've heard people refer to the Holy Spirit as a power or, or a force or some type of influence. That's wrong. The Holy Spirit is a person. You can grieve the Holy Spirit. You cannot grieve an it. You can only grieve a person and a personality. The Holy Spirit is a person. And because he's a person, it, 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 it necessitates a personal relationship. There must be a personal possession of the Spirit. The idea of being Spirit-filled. Some people think to be filled with the Spirit is like filling up a container with liquid. I fill it up a little bit here, I fill up a little bit there, I fill up a little bit here, but that's not what the feeling of the Spirit means. We don't get part of the Spirit now and part of the Spirit later. Are you halfway saved now? Well, no, you're completely saved. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul writes in verse 13, that uh, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, you have received all of salvation, and because if you are saved, you can't lose that salvation. You've completely been saved. That means you've been completely filled with the Spirit. You possess all of the Spirit. When you come to Christ and you're saved, you're baptized in the Spirit of God, immersed in the body of Christ. That's the easy point, though. That's the, if you are a believer in Jesus, you've got this one covered. The second point, that's the doozy. It's not simply enough for you to possess the Spirit, but to be Spirit-filled also means that the Spirit must possess you. Do you see the difference? As a believer in Jesus Christ, we all possess the Spirit, but very few of us allow the Spirit to possess us. We must surrender our life 
submit ourselves to the work of the Spirit in us. We don't need more of the Holy Spirit. You've received all the Holy Spirit you can handle just to, to be filled. I've said this before, I'll say it again. To be filled with the Spirit of God does not mean that you get more of God. It means that God gets more of you. When we talk about being filled with the Spirit, that doesn't mean, God, give me more of yourself. That's the wrong type of prayer. Christian, listen to me. Listen to me. You cannot get more of the Spirit than what you've already got. To be filled with the Spirit does not mean, God, give me more of you. God, give me more of you. God, give me more of you. You got all you can get. To be filled with the Spirit doesn't mean you get more of God. It means that God gets more of you. We need to yield ourselves. We must abandon ourselves so that the Spirit of God can take precedent in our life. You say, okay, that's good. I must possess the Spirit, the, pos the Spirit must possess me. Now, Pastor, here's a problem. How is it that the Spirit possesses me? That's a great question. Let's answer that right now. How is it that we can live Spirit-filled? How is it that we can live in the baptism of the Spirit? How are we filled with the Spirit? Number one, desire to be filled. Desire to be filled. If what I've been talking about here today, being the Spirit-filled life, walking in His will, walking in His purpose, if this has prompted a hunger in your heart, Jesus said, blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. If there's a desire in your heart, you're well on your way to being filled with the Spirit. You do not have to keep beating your head against the wall to be filled with the Spirit. So many people are saying, Lord, fill me, Lord, fill me, Lord, fill me. And they're, they're, they're going to these extra miles to be filled with the Spirit. And they're begging and pleading with God to be filled with the Spirit. And God is simply saying, listen, God is more eager for you to be Spirit-filled than you are to be Spirit-filled. Again, to be filled with the Spirit doesn't mean you get more of God. It means you surrender your life unto Him. And so we have to, first of all, desire it. I can't talk you into it. If I can talk you into something, somebody else can talk you out of it. It has to be a desire of your own heart. And when you desire to be Spirit-filled, when you've made up your mind that I want to yield my life to Him, that's step number two, is to yield yourself to Him. Romans 6.16 do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one's slave whom you obey? What that means is to whomever you yield, that is who you will serve. Therefore, we must yield ourselves to Jesus Christ to be his servant. In order to be spirit-filled, we must have our own personal Calvary. We, we have to die to self Understand that before you can have Pentecost, you've got to have Passover. Before you can have the filling of the Spirit, you've got to have the cross. Before there can be the coming of the Spirit, there's got to be a Calvary. Just as Jesus had to die on the cross to release the blessing and the promise of Pentecost, so there must be a personal crucifixion and a Calvary experience in every one of our lives. Friend, we have to die to self. We have to crucify the flesh. You see, the flesh has its own evil desires. The flesh is at war with the Spirit of God. Even though as a believer, Paul says that the flesh is a dead man, that dead man still raises its head and it draws us. It, it 
urges us out of the will of God and, and into sin. That's why it's so important. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, Therefore, uh, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, not I, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We must crucify ourselves with Christ. Now, the writer of Hebrews says it very clearly and very plainly and very rightly. Jesus had to die once and only once. Jesus didn't have to keep dying over and over and over. Jesus died once for all. But we must crucify ourselves daily. One moment of salvation saves you for, for a lifetime. But it does not guarantee that you're going to walk in the Spirit. When you invited Christ into your life, are you understanding me? When you invite Jesus into your life, you possess the Spirit. You do not allow the Spirit to possess you until you crucify that flesh over and over and over and over again. To put it another way, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the Spirit lives in you, but he may be dormant and not dominant. He may be resident, but that doesn't mean he's president. We have to daily, this is why it's so important that before you even leave your house, before you even get out of your bed, to be in the God's word, to, to be praying, to be, to, be, to be repenting of your sin, to, to say, Lord, here is my schedule, here is my calendar, here is what I have today. I don't want to even breathe. I don't want to take a step unless this is what your plan is for my life today. That's yielding, you see? That's crucifying that flesh. That's saying, not I, but Christ lives in me. Galatians 2.20. God will not bless a dirty vessel. And if you have sin in your life, you cannot be in the will of God. If you have sin in your life, you cannot be filled and full of the Spirit. He's in you. He's resident, but he's not present. He's dormant. He's not dominant. The problem with the church of Jesus Christ today is that we have a lot of Christians who possess the Spirit, but very few allow the Spirit to possess them. Number three, receive it by faith. Number one, desire it. Number two, yield to it. Number three, receive it by faith. We're saved once and only once. You don't have to continue to be saved, but we have to be filled over and over and over and over. Galatians 3.14 tells us the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Don't miss that last phrase. That we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul tells us how we're saved. How are we saved? By grace through what? Through faith. Ephesians 1 says we're saved by grace through faith. Uh, Galatians 3.14 tells us that we are filled the same way. We are filled the same way we're saved, by grace through faith. The promise of the Spirit through faith. As you're saved, so walk ye in him. You see, it's not enough to just simply possess the Spirit. The promise of Pentecost tells us that we can be full of the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, not simply possessing him, but allowing God to possess us. Let's move from the promise and now let's see the power of Pentecost. In the text that we just read, we, we see the miracles that took place. There's many miracles that took place. We, we often gravitate to the one miracle, the speaking in tongues, but there are actually three miracles. And these three miracles, understand that Pentecost, the way it happened in Acts chapter 2, will never happen that same way again. 
there are some believers that believe that what happened at Pentecost must happen in your life or, or for your salvation. That's wrong. What happened in Acts chapter 2 will never happen again. It doesn't need to. It was the fulfillment of the prophet Joel. And what Joel prophesied in his, in his prophecy, it happened in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Fifty days after Christ was crucified, the promise came. The new covenant came. Just as Moses received the covenant at the first Pentecost, at the Pentecost in Acts 2, we received the new covenant, the New Testament. Not the spirit of the law, not the law, but now grace. Now, where is the power come from? The miracles that take place. Three miracles. It's not, just the, it's not just the language. There's three miracles. First of all, there was the miracle of sound. Verse 2 says, And suddenly there came a, a sound from heaven as a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Have you ever been in a tornado or a hurricane before? They can be scary, can't they? I will never forget the time that Sarah and I, we moved to Dallas, Texas, from Pigeon Forge, Knoxville, Tennessee area in 2003. And growing up in Pigeon Forge, you know, Tennessee's just backwards anyway, right? We, we, we do things, we're, we're, we're always 20 years behind everybody else, which is part of the, the nostalgia of, of East Tennessee. But growing up in East Tennessee, my, my dad was the chief of police or is the chief of police in Pigeon Forge. So I was always a part and always was, was in uh, the emergency and fire and police and, and, and getting to know those guys. Well, growing up in East Tennessee, uh, there was something that happened. This was before cell phones and all of this. Uh, Pigeon Forge had a volunteer fire department. Anybody ever heard of a volunteer fire department? Uh, back in a lot of, of, of smaller cities, they had volunteer fire departments. And, and the way they would get a hold, because the city was poor back then, this was before Dolly came in and gave us Dollywood, right, and brought all the money and all the tourists in. Uh, uh, back in that day, Pigeon Forge was really poor. And so the way they were able to get a hold of all the volunteer fire department, uh, all the, the men that, that would fight the fires, well, they, they would sound a siren. And so no matter where you were in the city of Pigeon Forge, even in Sevierville and Gatlinburg, if there was a fire in Pigeon Forge, this siren blared. And that siren was telling the firemen, the volunteer firemen, that you've got to leave from where you are. You've got to come to the fire uh, station and get on the truck and go. My uncles were, were in the volunteer fire department. So I remember uh, Sunday lunches at my grandmother's house, and we would just be sitting down to eat. And all of a sudden, here comes a siren. Uncles had to lay down their forks. They had to get in their car. They had to go to the fire department. We moved to Dallas and in 2003, and, and we lived in this, this little old apartment that, that really, if a strong wind came, it would blow it down. It actually blew, the roof did get blown off of that building one time while we were there, but, but, but I mean, it was not, it wasn't a great thing, but, but anyway, we were living there. We hadn't been there long, and, and all of a sudden, I walk outside, and I, I hear the siren. It sounded a lot like it was back home in Tennessee. So I'm thinking, well, that's neat. This massive city, Dallas, they've got a volunteer fire department like they do at Pigeon Forge. That's amazing. I'm looking around and waving and people, I mean, people are serious. They're running. Their cars are zooming. I'm thinking, man, that fire must be close. I walk out in the street and looking down, see if I can find a fire. All of a sudden, this guy runs by me and says, what are you doing? I said, is the fire that way? He goes, what fire? I said, the siren. There's a fire somewhere. He said, dude, 
That's a tornado siren. Get in your house. We don't have tornadoes in East Tennessee. I stopped him. He started running. I started chasing him. I tackled him. I said, tornado? What do you do in a tornado? He said, get in your house, hunker down, get in a small room. I didn't know. He said, where are you from? I said, Tennessee. He goes, I understand now. You guys are slow. A little bit before we moved to Dallas, there was, and I learned about tornadoes. I didn't know Dallas had tornadoes, but a few years before we moved there, I read a report. Now I'm intrigued. I want to search and Google tornadoes in Dallas. And uh, a few years before we moved to Dallas, there was a tornado that actually came through. It was a very strong tornado. In fact, it, it, this tornado was so strong that hit Dallas, it, it literally picked up a, a, an 18-wheeler and it, it, it threw it across uh, 100 yards down, down the road. It tore houses apart, but perhaps the most unusual thing that, that I saw when I was reading this report was that after the tornado happened, a man walked outside of his house and, and he looked up at a telephone pole and there driven through that telephone pole was a plastic drinking straw. Can you imagine? Just a regular old plastic drinking straw driven through that piece of wood. Now, of course, a straw... A straw can never penetrate a pole, but because of the tremendous power of the wind of that tornado, it took that plastic straw and it drove it through that piece of wood like a spike. You see, amazing things happen when the wind begins to blow. Let me tell you something that's even better. Amazing things begin to happen when the Spirit of God begins to blow through the life of a believers and through a church. Things that are impossible, things that are unpredictable, things that people say that is not possible. Amazing feats are attempted when a church by his people, now you see on our own, we're limited. Hearts are hardened, hardened like a telephone pole. How are we going to get through? Satan's strongholds seem to be uh, unpenetrable. Evil is immovable. These immovable objects. How are we going to do what God's called us to do? How are we going to win Orlando with the city, uh, the city of Orlando with the gospel of Jesus? Pastor, you keep talking about the vision of, of winning the city for Christ. That seems impossible. Well, we are powerless. But, oh, friend, when the wind blows... When the wind of the Spirit begins to blow through the church, we become like straws attacking telephone poles. God uses us, and nothing will be able to stop us. Nothing can stop a Spirit-filled believer. I know that times are tough. I know things are hard. But you see, I read in the Bible that Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. I know things look bleak. I know it looks like we're losing, but friend, our answer is to turn to God, to let the wind blow. Dear God, let the wind blow. And Christian, we need to position ourselves. We need to position ourselves as a sail in a windstorm. If you're on a boat and you're on a sailboat, what do you want to do? You want to position your sail in the place where the wind is blowing so once it catches the wind, it will move you. 
A sailboat is designed to be moved by the wind. You are designed to be moved by the wind of the Spirit. And so many of us, we have a mast. The Spirit of God lives in our life. But so many of our sails are underneath inside the boat. It's time to simply not just be okay with possessing the Spirit. It's, it's time for the church to stop saying that I'm okay, that I'm saved now that I get to go to heaven. And it's time for us to start getting the cells out, living in the Spirit of God and functioning within His Spirit. Miracle number one was the miracle of sound. The second miracle that happened was the miracle of sight. You see it there. Verse three, there appeared to them divided tongues of fire, each one Rested on them. What that means is that a literal fireball came and sat on their head. They, they were human candles, 120 human candles. There was the miracle of sight. These, these humans were aflame. They were God's candles. They were aflame uh, with the spirit of God. We're told in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, that our God is a consuming fire. When God appeared to Moses, how did God appear to Moses the first time? in a bush that was being burnt, but yet it wasn't being consumed. And your Bible says that God spoke out of the fire. And it was out of the fire he spoke to Moses. There's something interesting about fire. You know what fire does? When fire falls, fire cleanses, fire purifies. It causes us to return and to repent. Think about Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, when Isaiah was called by God to be a prophet to God's people. He came into the holiness of God, and when he came into the holiness of God, he, wasn't saying, he didn't say, hey, God, how you doing? No, when God showed up in the presence of Isaiah, what happened? This man falls to his knees, and he says, woe is me, for I am undone. Can't even look at God. Woe is me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. His tool, his job is his mouth. Isaiah is saying, I got a dirty mouth. I've got a dirty mouth. You know where a dirty mouth comes from? A dirty heart. You know where a dirty heart comes from? Dirty eyes. What you put in through the eyes gets into the heart. What gets into the heart comes out through the life. That's why it's important that you must be careful what you watch, what you listen to. That's a whole other sermon for another day, though. Isaiah says, Woe is me, I am undone. What does God do? The angel takes a coal off the hot fire and he takes it over to Isaiah and he touches the lip of that prophet. Why? Because the fire cleanses, the fire cleanses. You know, our world is a very dirty world. And just by living in this world, oftentimes the dirt seems to find its way in our life. We make choices, and oftentimes those choices aren't the right choices. The great news is that fire cleanses. As a believer, you can go to the Lord and ask for forgiveness, and the fire of God cleanses you. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. You get on fire with the Spirit of God, you know what's going to happen? people are going to gather and watch you burn. You get on fire with the Spirit of God, people are, they're, they're interested in things that burn. Why, why do people go to hockey games? Nobody understands hockey, right? 
Why do people go to hockey games to watch the fights? Why do we watch NASCAR? Not because we like the cars. For the rest, people gather around to see fires, don't we? You get on fire with the Spirit of God, you will have an audience to be around you that you will be able to witness to. All you need is to experience the fire and the fellowship of the Spirit. You see, this is what happened on the day of Pentecost. They didn't have to go out and drum up support. They didn't have to have a a, a marketing campaign to bring people around uh, for them to share the gospel with. No. These, These men and women, these 120 men and women were caught on fire with the Spirit of God and people came around to watch them burn. They said there's something different about them. You see, the crowd came to them. They came running They were amazed, they were perplexed, saying, whatever could this be? What is this? Later on, they ask in Acts chapter 2, what must I do to be saved? Now, can I tell you what the problem is in the church in the world today? We're trying to get people to ask the second question before they ask the first question. We're trying to get people to come and say, what must I do to be saved? How can I join this church? How can I be baptized? How can I be saved? We want people running up like that. But listen, it doesn't work that way. It never has. Before God will move among the lost out there, he must first move among the saved in here. Hello. Before God allowed the Ninevites to be saved, he first had to work on the prophet Jonah. Jonah had to have a Restart of sorts. Before God took the gospel to the world, Peter and Paul had to have a jumpstart of sorts. Before God is going to take the gospel to Orlando, he must first get a hold of our hearts. Listen to me, before... Before people are going to ask, what must I do to be saved? They're going to ask, uh, before, before they, uh, they're, they're going to ask, what does this mean? What is God doing in this place? Can I be perfectly honest with you, church? We don't need a strong marketing campaign. We have the marketing campaign, the public relations campaign right here in Acts chapter 2. We, we don't have to trick people in to come in church. When, 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 when his people, when you and I catch the fire of the Spirit, we're not going to have to try to coerce people and, 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 and promise somebody if you come to church, somebody's going to win free tickets to Disney. We don't have to promise that because when the church is a fire with the Spirit of God, people are going to see that. They're going to want to know what is different in that place. There's something different about that place, and I want to know what's going on in there. That's the kind of church I want to be. That's the kind of Christian that I want to be. A Christian that is so on fire with the Lord that I don't have to seek the lost, but they see something different in me and they come and say, what's different in you? And eventually that second question is going to come, what must I do to be saved? Finally, it was a miracle of speech. This is the one that we all know. They begin to speak in tongues. I don't have any more time, I'm out of time, but this miracle of speech, again, the word glossolalia, where it gets the word tongue, it's, it literally means language. There is no question, there is no way to debate the fact that in Acts chapter two, what the disciples did was they spoke in actual languages. 
They were not speaking in gibberish. They were not speaking uh, a private prayer language. That This was a, an actual language that they spoke. There's no question when you read Acts chapter 2, you read the context. As they were speaking, they were speaking other languages for the sole purpose that the people who were gathered around for the Feast of Pentecost could hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. You say, well, what about private prayer language? What about the tongues of angels? Again, that's another sermon for another day. But right here, right here in our text, we see the miracle of speech was an actual language. Now, you said, Pastor, how does this apply to my life? The miracle of sight, the miracle of sound, the, 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 the miracle of speech. You see, these three miracles that happen on Pentecost, three, these three miracles must be present in our life. First of all, we have to be filled with the Spirit. Before you go out into the world, you must not only possess the Spirit, but the Spirit must possess you. Okay, you following that? That was point number one this morning. The, the Spirit, you must possess the Spirit, but the Spirit must also possess you. Now, when we leave this place and we share our faith, we go back to Pentecost and we understand these three miracles also must be in our life. The miracle of sight, the miracle of sound, the miracle of speech. John writes in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. That which we have seen, the miracle of sight. That which we have heard, the miracle of sound. That which we proclaim, the miracle of speech. The same three miracles that happened at Pentecost, John tells us that is how we go out and share with those to bring them into the fellowship of Christ. You say, well, what have, what have I heard? Well, you've heard the best news anybody can hear, that Jesus is the Savior, that even though you're a sinner, Christ died for all of your sins. That's what you've heard. You say, well, what have I seen? Well, hopefully you've seen a change in your life. When you came to know Christ, you've seen a change. You've seen the change in others. What have we heard? We've heard the gospel. What have we seen? The, the effects of the gospel. What do we proclaim? We proclaim the power of the gospel. It goes back to Pentecost. Here today, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, today my prayer is that you will be saved. Many of us here do know Christ, and my prayer for you is that you will stop just simply possessing the Spirit, but you allow the Spirit to so possess you that you will catch the wind that you'll catch fire. And when you catch the wind and you catch fire, you step out of this place full of the Spirit in his will and people will come and you will be able to share your faith. Lost people will be saved and we will win this city with the gospel of Christ.